Welcome to the Millerville Community Church podcast of our Sunday morning sermon series, where the Word of God is always the focus of our hearts and prayers. Although we're often considered a cowboy church, we're actually a community of diverse people from many different backgrounds who have a common commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And now, here's a message from Sunday morning at MCC. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your great love in sending us Jesus, that we could have eternal life. We thank you that we who were lost and without any hope gave us hope. And we celebrate at this time of year this wonderful hope, the certain hope, as we're told, that it's not a hope without really knowing whether or not it will happen, but it's a certain hope that we have eternal life as we follow and believe in Jesus Christ. We would just pray that you would speak to our spirits throughout this season, that we once again will be renewed and revived, that we once again will have our focus on you. And Lord, we think of those who um, have difficulties through this season. And um, I just really want to pray for Don right now as um, this is his first Christmas without Sharon there, and um, Lord, he's got this operation that's looming, and Lord, I particularly would ask for your grace on Don right now, and pray that you would um, sustain him. We pray for wisdom and skill on the part of the doctors, and we pray for real peace in Don's heart, and uh, Lord, we know that you um, give us that certain hope, and we know that you will answer these prayers. So we just pray for Don as he um, heads into this month and ask for a special favor for him. And Lord, we would ask that as we look into your word, that you would be particularly speaking to us, not just about um, the Christmas season, but Lord, the bigger picture of what you have done for mankind right from the beginning. And now as we look at Abram and the things that were happening in his life, in the example that he is of faith for us to take as an example. Lord, I pray that you would be um, quickening our minds and our hearts to receive your word and to follow in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the last time that uh, we were talking about Abram, we were looking at um, Genesis 13, um, before Genesis 13 as well, and we were looking at um, how Abram was called out of the land of Ur. And one of the things that we learned um, on the map that's on the screen, <laughs> almost, <laughs> there we go, um, notice where Ur is. It's way down in Sumer, um, near there. It's in the area of what we, the bigger area known as Babylonia, and we would understand it as being sort of the area of, of Iran and Iraq in particular. And so um, they didn't just cross across that Arabian desert. They would have to follow up the river and then come down. And God called him out of Ur and said to Abram, come and go to a place where I will show you and I will take you there. And so Abram had no idea where God was going to take him. 
And I think of the times where God has called us and, you know, we don't know our future. We can kind of think we plan it out just like Abram did. He was in a very wealthy city and uh, things were going really well. His dad had it in with the moon god and everything was good with this moon god, which was the the huge time of building ziggurats, which are like square temples that have steps that go up. And um, like they were building these monster temples in the area where he is. And God called him out of that idolatry to know the living God. And so Abram's life is going to be changed completely from what he thought his life was going to be like. And uh, so he was called away from the idolatry of his father and his father's family and and all the rest of his family, actually. And he made his way up um, to Mes- up the Mesopotamian area. And you can see where that red line goes up at the top. And somewhere in that area, we understand to be Haran. There's different ideas of where it is, but basically there. And then uh, God was calling him down into the land that we would have known as Canaan, as that he would have known as Canaan. Um, Israel today, but Canaan back then. And the Canaanites lived there. And this story is really about um, today, we're moving into what happened to those people in that area, as well as we're still looking at those people that lived in Sumer and Babylonia and so on. And so um, as we embark on this um, time of Christmas, I just thought, you know, this this fits so well. If we were just doing Covenant, which is what we've been doing and we will continue to do in January, we probably would have skipped this chapter because it, it seems like it's sort of like this aside. But as we stop and we focus on it, we see that the story that's in chapter 14 of Genesis is really the story of Christmas. And you say, well, how in the world is Christmas in Genesis 14? Well, we're going to find out. So, after Abram is called out of Ur and he settles in Haran for a little while, which is the northern part, and Terah, his father, dies, and God says again to Abram, you know, pack up your stuff and we're going to go south. And so he goes, he says, to a land which I will show you and I will bless you. And I will also bless all the families of the world through you. Now, I don't know if many of us have ever felt we were a blessing to the entire world. Some of us may have thought that. But that would be quickly beat out of us, I'm sure, by our siblings at least. And so, um, but Abram actually was told that by God, that he would be a blessing through him to the entire world. And uh, God brought it around to pass. And so it's a very cool thing how that happened. But um, before that that really happens, before we hear the whole story, which is going to take several months to tell, um, we have this little aside in Genesis 14. And those uh, kings that were around Sumer and Babylonia and all in that area, um, there's King uh, Cato Laomer, which is Cato, it's easier to say, and um, Amraphel and Arioch and Tidal. They were all um, very important kings. And they were, um, every year, they would kind of come into this area that's south of the Dead Sea, and they would demand tribute from all these lesser kings, 
like the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah. I don't know if you've ever heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, but these were in their glory days. And um, there's other kings, the king of Zeboim, the king of Zoar. Um, so there were five of these very small, insignificant kings, and they were like kings of little city-states, sort of like, this is my little territory, and I'm, I'm king of the castle here. And, um, but these stronger kings would come in and demand tribute from them, which meant that they had to give them, you know, flocks and um, their best of their cattle. They'd have to give them money. They'd have to give them sort of the produce of the land. So this became quite a hardship for these people. But every year, year after year, for 12 years, this went on. And the small kings, the little guys, finally got their act together and they said, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore. We're just not going to give away all of our stuff every year. It's Christmas and there's no presents for the kids and we're sick of it. And so they said, that's it, we're cutting them off. And uh, so in the 13th year, when you know the big important kings uh, sent their tribute gatherers we call them tax collectors, um, sent them over to get all this stuff. The little king said, Psh, go on your way, we're not giving you anything. And the tribute guy said, you're going to get in trouble. And they said, yeah, <laughs> let's see, what trouble can they give us? We've Forget it, we're not doing this anymore. And so they had a revolt, a rebellion, and they um, refused to give it. So this is year 13. So they have a whole year of wondering, I wonder what's going to happen. So they have a whole year before they're going to hear back from these kings. And in that year, some of them are thinking, we showed those big guys, what do they know? And others are thinking, yeah, maybe. I wonder what's going to happen in the 14th year. And so the 14th year rolls around. And King Kedorlaomer, who is the big cheese, he organizes the other three guys, the other three important kings, and they come as a massive force to come and get their tribute and put those guys back under their thumb. And so they're coming down, and they come all down into that the bottom there of the of the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea, and they conquer them. They conquer Sodom, they conquer Gomorrah, they conquer Zoar, Zo Zeboim, and all those areas in there they conquer. And the kings, the little guys, the little kings go running. And of course, this is like Arabia. And we know in Arabia, there's open tar pits. Like that's why they can get their oil out so easily because it comes right up to the surface. And so they're running away and um, they're falling into these tar pits and, and dying. And the king of Sodom, um, actually that is how he met his end, was through that. But uh, his son quickly took his place, and so they, you know, were still running and fleeing. And these guys, these important kings, came, and now all of the fighting men have fled, and they just conquer everything else. And so they conquer all this area, and now they're back to having to pay tribute. But they didn't just conquer them in a little way this time. This time, they took the plunder. They didn't just say, well, here's the list, give it to us. They took everything. They took um, 
women, they took children, they took their staff, and they took the men that had been left behind, including an important person to Abram, his nephew, Lot. Because if you remember, last time we looked at Lot, he said, you know, I want the best land, so I'm going to move down by Sodom, and I'm going to live in Sodom, and I'll have all these pasture lands around there that are beautiful. And so Lot was taken captive as well. And a fugitive got away from this um, moil that's going on, and he ran to Abram, knowing that Abram is, a, is, a, is wealthy and rich and also a relative of Lot. And he said, your nephew Lot has been captured by these kings that have come in and plundered. And the kings went on to not just take that area, but all that southern area through the Negev and all that area, they plundered the whole thing. So these little kings created havoc for all the people of the area that had up to that point been kind of unaffected by this. And so now they're all in trouble. And you can imagine how the whole Middle East is in turmoil. Have you seen the Middle East in turmoil? <laughs> it never ends. And so they're all in turmoil there. And uh, Abram, he says to his buddies... So he's got, um, you know, his friends that he's settled. He, he lives there by the Oaks of Mamre, which is, um, you know, Mamre is an important chieftain. And so he gathers up his allies, but mainly his own fighting men. And he has 318 fighting men in his own sort of family unit. And so they go to take care of this problem. Now, what I love about this story is Abram could have said to Lot, now, remember when they parted ways, Lot said, I want, you know, Abram said, you know, we have too much here, and we're kind of, our men are fighting, so let's just settle this peacefully. You take whatever land you want, whatever you don't take, I'll take for myself. And so Lot picked what he thought was the best-looking part, and Abram took the rest of it because Abram knew that it was God who supplied and I love this message that no matter how much we give, God will always outgive us, and he will always take care of us. And Abram had learned this lesson. And so he said to, he was able to say to Lot, take whatever you want, and I'll have the rest. And so Lot took what looked like to man the best, and now Abram was left with the, the rest of it and had become very wealthy because of it. So... Now Lot is in trouble. And Abram could have easily said, Psh, that's what you get for being so greedy. Have you ever said that to anyone? Or worse, has anybody ever said that to you? That's what you get for being so greedy. If you hadn't been so greedy, and if you'd stayed here with me, and if we'd stayed peaceful, this wouldn't have happened to you. But no, 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 you've got to go, and you've got to settle down in Sodom, and Sodom is where all the problems are. And now it's your own problem. I've done what I could for you. You're gone. But Abram, man of God, does not do this. Instead, he says to his um, fighting men and to his allies, he says, we've got to go and we've got to get Lot back because he's my nephew and I'm not going to let him go. And I think there's just such a lesson there for loving other people, that even though they may do um, the wrong thing or make the wrong choices, we still love them because the enemy holds them captive. 
and so when we pray for others that's really what we're doing is trying to get them free from the enemy that's holding them captive and they need us to love them and so Abram loves Lot and he prays all the time for Lot because we see that in in the next few chapters we see how he does that but he's going to rescue Lot and so he sends sets out with you know it's like this small teeny army compared to the armies of Kedor Laomer like he's he's huge he's powerful and he's got powerful allies and they've come into their territory and nobody's able to stop them and Abram says we have to get Lot back and so he devises a plan, a strategy, and it, it just makes me think often of how, you know, P Pastor John has been teaching us to have strategy when we pray against the enemy of our souls, Satan, and we pray against him and have a strategy in our prayer life to do that, and that's why we have these prayer rooms that are called war rooms, because it's a strategy. And so Abram has this strategy, and what he does is at nighttime, he um, says, we're going to attack at night. We're going to come up from behind them. We're going to divide our forces, and we're going to come at them at a number of different angles so that when we come after them at night, we're going to cause all this confusion. And so they attacked, and sure enough, confusion in the camp, and they all started um, you know, fighting. They didn't know where the problem was, and it's over here and it's over there. They have no idea how many people are there. All they see is this noise and hear the noise and see the lights. And so they, um, they flee, and they um, really are unsuccessful against Abram with the small army. So Abram, with his small army, is able to get Lot back and all the stuff, not just Lot, but everything that was taken, all the plunder, and he brings it back, and they come back again into this area in the, um, you know, just now we're just a little bit west of the Dead Sea, which is the area of Jerusalem. And it wasn't Jerusalem at the time. It was a small um, city called Salem, and Salem means peace. And so they come back, um, and, um, you know, the other guys have been chased off all the way up to Damascus, which is way north um, to Aram and, and further. So they've been chased away, they're free, and uh, the, the king of Sodom, of course, he's died, but his son, um, the young king of Sodom, is alive, and he's got all his stuff back and his city-state city back. And so um, they all go out to meet um, Abram in the Valley of Shaveh, which is the King's Valley, which is um, right beside Jerusalem, what we know as Jerusalem. And so they come out, and that's, um, that's where we're up to. But there's an interesting thing that happens at this time, and this is the one that ties in for us this story way back about Abram and our celebration of Christmas today. And so um, way back, this um, celebration with um, Abram, and they're, you know, they're all happy because they've been returned, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him, and another king came out. And we're to see the contrast between these two kings. So the king of Sodom comes out, and he's like, oh, you saved us. Oh, thankfully, we're back to what we were. I'm so glad. 
and uh, you know he's going to want to give him some plunder, but we'll get to that part of the story in a minute. But contrast that with the other king who comes out, and his name is King Melchizedek, and it says that Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which is the old name for Jerusalem before it became Jerusalem, and it means peace. And his his name, Melchizedek, in the Hebrew is based on two names put together, two words. Malach means king. Well, we know it as Sidkanu, but Sidek means righteousness. And so his name means king of righteousness. And so he comes out. You know somebody else called the king of righteousness? Yes. Jesus. Okay, so um, so Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And what does that picture? They don't have communion at this time. But here we have a picture of the new covenant that Jesus instituted with bread and wine. And so he brings out this bread and wine. And it says that he is the priest of the God Most High. Now, this name for God is not just like, we're not so great with names. When we name kids, we name something that sounds good with our last name and, you know, isn't going to be used by the bully kids once they get to school against them. And, you know, that's kind of how we think when we name kids. But um, that's not how it is for, uh, for God's name. His name, every one of his names is very significant and reveals something about his character. And this name for God is El Elyon. And that means it's um, translated God Most High. But what it means is it's actually his millennial name. And it's um, used in scripture, in Psalms, and uh, in Daniel quite a bit. We'll see El Elyon. And the context is it seems always to be something to do with the millennial reign of Christ when he will return to earth and he will reign on earth. And so um, when Melchizedek comes out, it says that he was a priest of God Most High, El Elyon. And he blessed him, meaning Melchizedek blessed Abram, and said, blessed be Abram of God Most High. So Abram is now connected in King Melchizedek's um, words here with God Most High. Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Speaking about God, not about Abram. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So it's God who delivered these enemies. Yes, Abram did his part. He went out. He went to battle, he strategized, but it was God who did the delivering. And when we pray, we pray, we beseech God, we ask God, but it's God who does the work. And so um, uh, God delivered their enemies into their hands. And he, meaning Abram, gave him, meaning King Melchizedek, a tenth of all. So you go, of all, well, it must be of all the plunder. But let's read on. It says, in, um, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me, give me my people back that I can reign over, and you take all the goods for yourself, so all the plunder you can have. And Abram says to this king of Sodom, and we see this huge contrast, remember, between these two kings, and also between the king of Sodom and between Abram. 
And so um, the king of Sodom says, you know, we'll give you all this stuff. Just give me the people. I'm going to get back on my feet that way. And Abram says, no, I don't want any of it. Like, you go ahead and you pay, like soldier pay, to my men and to uh, my allies. But I don't want any of your plunder. Because I don't want anyone to say that it's the king of Sodom who's made me rich. Or, you know, the king of Babylon who's made me rich. Because my source is God. And for us to understand that whatever we have, whatever we are, whatever our gifts or talents, whatever our wealth is, whatever our family situation is, these are from God. And God has put us in these particular places for his purposes. There's a reason for Abram's wealth. And Abram understood that it's not about him and all the stuff he can have and collect up and sort of sit on his heap of wealth. He understood how God was using this to show the blessings of God to the world to come. Abram always seemed to have this well in his head, and he didn't become self-important. Even though you think about it, these kings that he defeated, they were at the top of the heap. And Abram just defeated them. So he's at the top of the top. So there isn't a king right now who's actually, in this world's eyes, stronger than Abram. Abram's at the top of everything. And yet Abram says, I don't want anyone to think that man has done this for me. This has been God's doing, and God will receive the glory. And so Abram doesn't give any of that plunder to King Melchizedek, He gives him a tenth of all that he possessed, even before he had gone to battle. And so um, we see that the lesser pays tribute to the greater. And so we see Abram giving a tenth. It wasn't required of him. Melchizedek didn't say, I want a tenth. But Abram, understanding who King Melchizedek is, gives him a tenth of all that he possesses. And... uh, He says, I will not take a thread or sandal, thong, or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. And so Abram, um, we see just such an example of his blessing and how he blesses the people around him, but that's not really the blessing that God was talking about when he said, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all the families of earth. There's something else that God was talking about. For us, we think blessings wealth. That's just how we think, and we always have. That's mankind's way of thinking, you know, having peace and having money, enough money to do what you want to do and a little bit besides, to not have to worry, having health. These are the things that we think about as blessing. But God has a much bigger, more important thing than that. And so, um, you know, I think of this opportunity that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had. And like I said, we have a contrast here. So the king of Sodom has had Melchizedek living there all this time. And it tells us in Scripture that Melchizedek preached righteousness And so they've had really this prophet here. He's prophet, he's king, and he's priest, priest of God Most High. He holds these three positions. These are three 
um, positions that Jesus Christ also holds. They had the presence of Melchizedek all this time. And here they are this final time, and Abram demonstrates his um, abeyance and his tribute and his worship to God Most High, but not the king of Sodom. Instead of looking at Abram and saying, oh, wow, you know, I better do this too. I better thank God Most High. Instead, this king of Sodom says, great, thanks. I get to keep all the plunder. Wow. (laughs) That Abram, he's like... He wasn't thinking, I've got all the people back, I've got all the plunder, I've got like more than what I ever dreamed I could have. I'm going back to my riotous way of living. And we all know the story that's coming of Sodom and Gomorrah. This was a chance for Sodom to repent. And Sodom did not repent. And the people of Sodom did not repent. We make mistakes And sometimes we get off track and we go in a completely opposite direction than what God is calling us to. And the point that's being made here is that God is calling us out of those mistakes to come back and repent. And he does give us many opportunities to do so. But we have the choice to refuse, just like the king of Sodom. And once again, he refused. He had Lot living in his city. And Lot, as we learn later, was a righteous man. Even though he made mistakes, he was a righteous man. And it grieved him what was happening in the city of Sodom. And so here's this king of Sodom. He could repent at this point. Even in front of the Lord Jesus, is my understanding. Now, not everybody agrees with that. That's not the point being made here. But this wonderful king Melchizedek in front of him, he does not repent. And sometimes people make those choices. And judgment is going to come very swiftly, in fact, um, very swiftly, on Sodom and Gomorrah and Zoar and these other areas in the south, these same kings that could at this point repent and do not. So um, Abram uh, testified all these times and... um, You know, they went to Abram, he helped them out, and they still do not repent. And so um, this King Melchizedek, though, I want to pick up on him because uh, we ask, you know, who is this king of glory? It's in Psalm 24. So if you want to flip with me to Psalm 24, this king of glory, I just want to read a, a few verses there. The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And going down to verse 7 of Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And so who is this king of glory? This Melchizedek? Who is he? 
Turn to uh, Hebrews 7, and, you know, the New Testament reveals what the Old Testament conceals. That's really, you know, other than Psalm 110, that's all we learn about Melchizedek in the Old Testament. But the writer of Hebrews tells us a lot more about who he is. And so in uh, verse, in chapter 7, and I'm just going to look at the first four verses here, Uh, So the writer of Hebrews, he's writing to them. He's actually mentioned first in Hebrews 5. He's writing to these Hebrews, and he's saying, I want to teach you all these things. And then he goes, so like about King Melchizedek, and he's looking at all their faces, and they're going, what? And he goes, oh, all right. I got to go back to the basic teaching and teach you about Melchizedek. And we're all going, who is this King Melchizedek? And we need to be taught just like these people that are being written to. And so he takes this huge aside that lasts from chapter 5 all the way through to chapter 7. And he's telling us who Melchizedek is. So he says here in chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. Now this is very interesting because this is written in the book of genealogies where we first meet Melchizedek. Genesis is the book of genealogies. Every section of Genesis starts out with, these are the generations of. The whole book of Genesis is broken up into those um, segments. And here in this book of genealogy, he is one without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He abides a priest perpetually, Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth. And so um, I want to just flip over to verse um, 15 and 16. You can read that whole chapter on your own because it's all about Melchizedek and his priesthood. But here it says in verse 15, and this is clear still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirements, but according to the power of an indestructible life. So he has no genealogies, but what qualifies him for this priesthood, and this whole chapter is contrasting the Levitical priesthood that they had, um, you know, that the Jews had, versus this Melchizedek, this, this... strange character that we only hear about way back in that Genesis um, chapter 14 that we read and a little bit in Psalm 110. And now here, this writer of Hebrews is writing and telling us that this King Melchizedek, that um, he had no genealogy, That's this is where we learn that, and that he had no beginning of days and he has no end of days. And he's also in a perpetual priesthood. And it's contrasting, saying, you know, the Levitical priests, they kept dying off. They had to get a new high priest all the time because the old one would die off. But not this priest, not the priest Melchizedek. He doesn't die. He has, and what puts us in the order of Melchizedek? There is no one in this order. Like we have the order of the the priesthood of Levi, 
and we have the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek, and the only one in it is Melchizedek and Jesus Christ, and that's the point that the writer of Hebrews is saying, that he's in the order of Melchizedek. What put him in that order and not the Levitical order? It wasn't his birth, like it is for the Levites. They're born into being that in that tribe, but not the order of Melchizedek, because there is no mother or father, no genealogy, no beginning of days, no end of days. It's the indestructible life that puts them in that order. And who is that but the Lord Jesus Christ? And so he has an indestructible life. And so the lessons of faith that we're looking at this is I always um, look at especially chapters that seem like, wow, we're talking about Abram and then all of a sudden we have this sort of battle going on and then we're back again to the covenant in the next chapter. So why is this here? What are the lessons that God is trying to teach us by including the story about Abram? Because there's lots of stories about Abram that aren't included here. He lived, you know, over 100 years old. So there's a lot in his life. But why this story? What are the lessons that are um, needing me to learn? And some of the things, and I think there's a lot of things, and I think there's a lot more that we could talk about, but we won't, um, is learning how to leave off of worldly prizes or what the world esteems and instead to choose God. doesn't mean there's anything wrong with being rich because Abram was very rich, but he didn't esteem it. He didn't love it. He didn't crave it. He didn't desire it. He wasn't greedy. He wasn't grabbing. And when he had the opportunity rightfully to take much more, he said, I don't want it. I don't want it. How many of us would buy a lottery ticket, have the winning ticket, and then say, I don't want it because I don't want anybody to think that a lottery made me rich? How many of us would do that? But Abram did. And so he teaches us because Abram is all about faith. And so we learn from Abram what it is to walk in faith. And so everything about Abram that's in the scriptures is to teach us something about having faith or maybe sometimes, you know, when faith, when we don't have faith. And, and Abram certainly had times like that. But leaving off what the world esteems and instead choosing to worship God and learning that God is a God of mercy. God was merciful to Abram. He brought him out of that Babylonian territory all the way up the Mesopotamian down into the land of Canaan in order to show him the blessing that he was going to be as he had faith, the blessing that he would be to the entire world by having Jesus Christ as his seed. We see the mercy of God on Sodom and Gomorrah who are going to be destroyed by fire from heaven because of their sinfulness. And yet, it's not like, you know, all of a sudden this fire is coming down and they had no warning. They are repeatedly warned to repent. And I believe that this is very important for our culture. We never talk about the judgment to come anymore. We just talk about the love of God. And yes, the love of God is overwhelming it pervades our whole world but there is a coming judgment and that judgment will be very severe on those who reject the lord jesus christ the judgment is all about it's not about behavior it's about what is our response to the lord jesus christ look at abram and look at 
um, Sodom and how they responded to King Melchizedek. It's all about our response to the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he our Lord and Savior, or do we reject him and say, don't need him, everything's fine the way it is. And so we see that God is the God of mercy and grace. And also, I think it's really important to remember where this is in the timeline of Abram. The covenant is not made yet. That comes next. And so this happened before God did covenant with him. And I think there's a journey that we're on of faith. It's not like, for most of us, it's not sort of like this, all of a sudden we went from light to darkness. There's a journey that we go through. And the journey is actually a journey of relationship. Because God is a God of relationship. And he calls us in to be in relationship with him. And so Abram's called out of Ur, then he's called out of Haran to go down into the land of Canaan after his father dies. And he's, um, you know, there's so many times where God is calling Abram. And Abram responds. God calls him out of, you know, his tent to go and fight uh, King Cadalor So all these things, God is calling him, but calling him to learn about a life of faith. And so it's not about relationship. It's not about our behavior. It's, um, it's about learning that covenant is going to come from God, but he's calling us not in order to just give, 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 but for us to understand he wants relationship. He's calling us into that relationship, that intimacy with him. Imagine that. Intimacy. Like this is, n- this is unknown to anyone else with any other kinds of gods, past, present, or future. It is only El Elyon, God Most High, who cares to have intimate relationship, conversation with us, his creation. And so uh, just to look at Luke, I'm finally going to tie it into Christmas. So turn to Luke chapter 2. I didn't... Oh. Yeah, Matthew, but I meant Luke, actually. We put Matthew up there. That's my fault. Sharon even asked me. So, yeah, Matthew's good. Okay, so just turn to Luke, chapter 2. Wait a minute. Maybe it is Matthew. Yes. Okay, so why would I write Luke on my notes here? Sharon. <laughs> Explain that. <laughs> okay, so Matthew 2. <laughs> verse 2. Okay, so Matthew 2, verse 2. Um, where These are the Magi coming, okay? So this is very cool because guess where the Magi come from? That whole area of Babylon and um, Sumer and Ur, that's, where they, that's the area that they're coming from. And they come, and now they're in the city of Jerusalem, and they're asking, where is this king? This one who has been born king of the Jews, for we saw his star in the east. They've been waiting anxiously. We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. And look down to verse 10. And when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And listen to what they do. 
opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The gold represents his kingship. The frankincense, that's incense, represents his priesthood. And the myrrh, that's the death spice. That's what they would um, put on the dead bodies, represents his death, him being our savior through his death. And so these are, the, these are the gifts that they bring to the, um, the Lord Jesus as an infant. And then, of course, we know um, the rest of the story. But I just wanted to look at what they come, because they come presenting these gifts. There's one last verse I want us to look at, and that's in Isaiah. So just turn with me to Isaiah 60, and we're going to look at verses 5 and 6. It says here, then, and this is all in the, um, the wealth of the nations coming to Zion. So this is all about the millennial kingdom. And remember I said that El Elyon is a name for God in the millennial kingdom. And so they come, verse 5, then you will see and be radiant and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you, speaking of the Lord Jesus. A multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba will come, and they will bring gold and frankincense. There's no myrrh. Isn't that crazy? The gold, he's king. The frankincense, he continues in the priesthood perpetually, never-ending. No days ending ever. And yet the myrrh is missing because he already is the risen Savior by the time the scripture is fulfilled. And so, um, and he, and will bear the good news of the praises of the Lord. So who is it that you attribute your wealth and your position and your family maybe, maybe your intellect? Who do you attribute that to? Who gave that to you? the king most high, or is this just something that you've been able to accomplish on your own? Who is this king of glory in your life? And what are the faith life lessons that you are experiencing, how God is calling you and causing you to walk in his ways, and are you responding to those things? And then how will all of us, how will you, how will I, honor and praise the Lord Jesus Christ in this coming season? as we celebrate his birth, but also the fact that he, just like Pastor John was saying to us, he's coming back as our risen Lord, our King, our forever Savior. Let's pray. We do thank you, O Lord, for you have given to us this new life. And Lord, I just pray for any here who do not yet know you in this way, who do not have a relationship with you, who have not stepped into knowing you as their Savior, that this would be the day, that today would be that day of salvation. And Lord, that they would pray and come to you and give their heart to you and seek to follow you the rest of their days. And Lord, for those of us who have already made that step, 
may we continue in what we have already promised, that we will follow you, that we will worship you, and that we will honor you above everything and every person that we know. Lord, may you be the king in our life, and may we see that day when it comes, when you reign here on earth in all the fullness of all your glory. And we just thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have done for us in bringing us into your kingdom. We pray in your name, and we close in your name. Amen. You'll find a warm, relaxed atmosphere at MCC. We love worship and music here. It is our desire to direct people to the Lord Jesus Christ, the source of all life, hope, and true transformation. Our Sunday service starts at 10.30 a.m. and runs till noonish. Coffee and snacks are served. Children's church and child care are available.